1: This is Idle Australians with James Matheson and Osher Ginsberg. Exploring
0: the bits you might have missed from Australian history and Australian culture. Welcome to Idle Australians. I'm Osher Ginsberg, that's James Matheson, and I believe um, he's wearing a beautiful hat from the Hunter S. Thompson collection of We're Going On Adventuring.
1: It's <laughs> a great hat. Yeah, people have said that to me, but, I mean, I think we've all got a little bit of Hunter S in us, you know, Um, a a wild, crazy, shiny diamond (laughs) of a man. Do you remember the the first time you read Hunter S? uh, Yeah, I mean, I think do most people go through a stage like- Generally. Late teens, early 20s where they discover Hunter for the first time? Yeah, you go.
0: so I think now people go through a Neil Strauss stage and then they work their way through the game and- the dirt, and they kind of end up at you know wherever Neil ended up. But I think back when a couple more years ago, it was like he definitely went through a, a hunteress stage.
1: I definitely did not go through <laughs> a Neil Strauss, neither did I. Phase. I got five
0: pages into the game and went, I think I set it on fire. Horrible book.
1: So, wait, is that still a thing that young men read? I don't know,
0: but it certainly was the thing in the 2000s. It was well and truly a thing.
1: Is he the nagging yep. guy where you try yep. and That's him. insult women that in a like subtle way to get them on the defensive is this, to get them to is this the guy yeah, yeah it sounds really disgusting now <laughs> i can't believe that that was ever a thing what was the other book he wrote
0: uh, he wrote oh, he wrote a few and he's, he's ended up at you know as someone who he got sucked into sex cults and all kinds of things and he wrote a book about coming out the other side so but he i think he also he was the guy that wrote the dirt from motley crew he wrote it for them yeah
1: and when you say he came out the other side, is he like remorseful yeah, or is he so, yeah. reflective? Yeah yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Like I, th- I think he fell right – I'm probably getting the story completely wrong but I think he fell right off the edge of the cliff into a horrible addiction hole and had to claw right. his way back out. Bart wrote books about it the whole time.
1: You know, there's a fundamental emptiness that you must be aware of when you're living that type of lifestyle, when you're treating women as commodities – you know you're trying to just get notches on a belt and maybe that comes from a genuine place of just self-loathing in order to feel something or feel good about yourself you're treating women as, as conquests the idea that he was profiting from that yeah i mean there's a like i was saying a fundamental emptiness that must exist within you and i think that Hopefully, the narrative around that is changing, you know, for men. I think there has always been this idea of, oh, you're a bit of a champion, you're a bit of a stud, you're a bit of a hero if you've been with a lot of women. But definitely, as you get older, and I don't know if it's happening generationally, but people are starting to see that it's actually really sad and pathetic because to sort of embrace your power as a man is actually to control your own libido and control your own Ability to stand in your manhood and be like, no, I don't need to screw my way around. Like I am the, I control my own ability to be who I am. Yeah. Not give that away. Mm. I don't know. Look, what do we know? <laughs> what do we know about <laughs> any of these things? Hey, anyway. Look, yes, I'm wearing a Hunter S. Thompson
0: hat. At Hunter S. Thompson's funeral, he wrote it down as like his ashes were loaded into a cannon and Johnny Depp then fired him out of a cannon across a valley at his beloved Colorado mountains retreat.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's that's the way you want to go out. We've all been to funerals that are lame and depressing and not a celebration Mm. of the human, and I think that's a real tragedy. You know, we all get sucked into this idea that we need to be sad and morose and serious Mm. when often the people that we are close to and are celebrating you know would want nothing of the sort to happen at their funeral but we we all have to we all have to buy into that like oh you've got to be sad you know whereas an even greater gift to the person that you have lost is to be like, wow, what a fucking champion, you know? What a hero. This is this life ends for everyone and let's celebrate.
0: If you die first, James, top three things you want me to make sure happen at your funeral.
1: Just load me into a dumpster.
0: Okay, that's one.
1: Yep. And then set it on fire. <laughs> that's two. <laughs> and push it down a hill. <laughs> push it. Push it down a hill. Push it down a hill, <laughs> <laughs> down a hill and that's it. Yeah, it's like the bow, It's like the uh, hobo Viking funeral. <laughs> Instead of out on a pyre pushed into the ocean with a flaming arrow, it's just like a bit of caro in a dumpster day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Well, I think at mine, if, if I die first, which is probably highly probable because I'm older than you, if I die first, just make sure there's pyro. All right, like oh, yeah, absolutely. At, at least three moments, in at least three moments during the show, pyro, like the welcome, some point in someone's, eul- someone's eulogy when they drop some, When you in your eulogy, when you do the, if you want to, when you do the eulogy, you, you drop pyro in the middle of it and at the end when everyone leaves, just confetti cannons. The song Can't Get Enough from Supergroove has to be played at some nice. point.
1: Nice, <laughs> I like
0: it. <laughs> just because it's a good sing-along? <laughs> And a good vibe. Soul Burger can do the catering. Everyone gets to eat. All right. Oh, no, they get grilled yeah. through the catering because there'll be some people that want to eat meat, but they do good sweet potato chips. So as long as there's sweet potato chips at my funeral.
1: Well, hurry up and die, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hungry. <laughs> I'm hungry.
0: <sighs> we started this show because we wanted to talk about parts of Australian culture that people might have overlooked, You know, and we've covered some pretty amazing things. We've covered... The inventor of Wi-Fi. We covered the person, people that created chicken salt, the the woman whose family in, invented the dim sim. You know, just kind of touched on Australians that we might not have otherwise realised have influenced us and influenced the world so incredibly. But this name has been coming up for a while, and so we, we've decided to do a show on this bloke because not a lot of people know his name, but I hundred percent, thousand percent, million percent guarantee you know what he's up to and you
1: know what he's been. Yeah. And you will probably be shocked and surprised that he is such a prolific contributor to his field, but you have never heard his name. He's a man who has got you moving time and time again without you having any awareness that he was behind the grooves. Let me let me just ask you, like,
0: if, if I said, Jimmy, name some great Australian songwriters. What do you think? What what are some names that people would throw out there? Uh probably Paul Kelly. Would definitely. A- be up amazing there. Australian
1: songwriter. Yeah. We'd probably have Bernard to. Bernard
0: Fanning these days. Turned out nothing like I had planned. Yeah.
1: Don Walker, Cold Chisel. Don Walker, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Great
0: Australian songwriter. But of those those three You know, not really any massive international, like super massive international hits, right? Big hits here, but no one's been, like, number one in the UK. However, this man has, and he's not from Sydney. This is the part I love the most. He's not from Sydney. He's not from Melbourne. He's from fucking Nambour. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Born under the shadow of the big pineapple. (laughs) (laughs) Who are we talking about, Osh? We are talking about Mike Chapman. Mike, who has been a part of writing over 70 number one hits. Mike, who says, I don't write songs, I write hits. I haven't got enough time to write a song that's not a hit. In fact, he's been quoted as saying, I wish I could wake up one day and not write a hit. Who are we talking about? We're talking about the man that wrote this. We're talking about the man that wrote this. We're talking about the man that wrote this
1: oh, so fine, so fine, mind, hey, hey. and
0: sixty-seven John others.
1: <laughs> I mean, firstly, people are going to be very shocked that that is one person that has written all those songs. That, and we haven't even gotten started, no. let alone a brilliant Australian from Nambour.
0: Yeah, Mike Chapman is his name. He was in Brisbane. He, as you do when you were in Brisbane, the one thing you want to do is get the fuck out of Brisbane. Uh, he, so, but as a kid, he was on a kid's TV like Rumpus Room, which was a kid's TV show back in the day. And all he ever do, wanted to do was, um, was was write songs and be in music. And, and back then, the, the path uh, out of Brisbane was basically straight to London. You didn't really go anywhere else. You went straight to London. So he moved to the UK. He started to rub shoulders quite a lot with the team uh, and the glam rock scene, which is how he ended up getting around the suite, which uh, he ended up writing Ballroom Blitz for. And slowly, slowly, bit by bit, he started to just become this fucking god of of songwriting. And it just blows my mind because we've done so much in the music industry, you and me. We've interviewed so many people. But I just can't kind of kind of get my head around that we never really talked about this guy.
1: Yeah, I mean, songwriters often go under the radar and some of them want that. Some of them realize that that's their strength. They can write and produce hits for the biggest stars on the planet, but they can remain anonymous and they can just get the paycheck and they can get the gratification of creating incredible hits. But... They don't have to worry about the paparazzi. They don't have to worry about touring. They don't have to worry about their other band members. They don't have to worry about keeping together on stage. No, all they do is just pen classics. And the thing is that for many of them, like you said, they can't not write, you know, it's in their blood. Like they go to bed with tunes in their head. They wake up having dreamt songs and they become these vessels for – musical ideas that just flow through them. And and I know before you mentioned that um, when you were young, the the thing you want to do when you grow up in Brisbane is get the fuck out of Brisbane. But have you noticed that that may not be the case anymore because everyone from Sydney and Melbourne is going (laughs) to (laughs) Brisbane? Like the amount of people that have moved to Brisbane is so enormous that when people move up there, they get asked, uh, you're part of the wave, are you? What wave? Just the wave of people. Coming from the southern states, moving to Brisbane. So something's going on up there. I don't know if it's changed since you grew up there, but... Oh it's a very different Brisbane's place.
0: Brisbane's happening. It's back on the map. It's be- it's got a W hotel now. Brisbane's a very very different place. A very different place to when I when I grew up there and I if they made the kind of television that I'm getting paid to make at the moment up there I would move tomorrow. But uh, they don't so I'm I'm stuck down here uh, in the 57th week of of lockdown. But Mike, this is back in the back in the 70s, Mike. Brisbane was a total cow town back in the 70s. So Mike got out of there and he started working with The Sweet, who, as I, I just played that track, I'll just play it to you again. This is The Sweet Ballroom Blitz, and Mike was a part of writing this track. Just monsters. Ballroom blitz.
1: Ballroom.
0: So, Mike and his songwriting partner, Nikki Chin, were a part of writing those songs for uh, Sweet. And ballroom blitz. They went on to write, I think, eight top ten hits for Sweet. Now, this is this doesn't really happen much these days because you you really do get a lot of artists kind of writing their own music. But back then, it was very much about Sweet. Where you know they were a manufactured band. Bands were put together because of how they looked and who fitted well on stage with each other and who was a great bass player, drummer, etc. They wrote eight top ten hits for Sweet, and then Sweet kind of. Went, hang on, we're touring, we're on stage, we're playing all these pop songs. It can't be that hard. They go into the studio <laughs> to record an album of all the songs they've written by themselves. How'd that do? It's all over. Which happens, man. It happened with um with the Monkeys. Remember that band, the Monkeys, the American band, the TV band, the Monkeys. They had people like Neil mm-hmm. Diamond,
1: completely manufactured. Had a team of songwriters creating stuff for them, and then they thought, hang on. But also, it's not just about ego and the the sense that they think they can do it themselves. It's also the money, you know, songwriters own the publishing rights mostly and they are the ones who are actually seeing the dollars from songs getting played. So, I mean, a lot of people, I think, misunderstand who's getting paid when a song gets played on the radio and they have this assumption that, oh, the artist recorded it. They must be the one making the money. But, you know, if you wrote the song, if you are the actual writer of the music, then... Those royalty dollars, those checks are coming into your mailbox.
0: Yeah, the greatest. I remember hearing that at music school when I was nineteen, our uh, our songwriting teacher told us this exactly that. The way he put it was: "There's this famous Australian story of Greg McCainch from. He's the bass player from Skyhooks. All right, this Australian band called called Skyhooks were absolutely massive on Mushroom Records. Uh, had an album called Living in the '70s and they were rehearsing and they were playing and such and such and such. They released the album. The album went absolutely massive and they turn up to rehearsal like they always do and Shirley Strawn, the lead singer, shows up in his VW Beetle and Greg shows up in his Porsche 911 and he goes to the manager, what the fuck's going on? How come Greg's getting paid more? I thought this was an even split. He goes, yeah, it isn't even split on the performance. You all get the same money for a gig. He goes, well, how come? Why is he driving a Porsche? He goes, he wrote the songs. Yeah, but I fucking sing them. Yeah, but he wrote them. <laughs> and and from then on, I- exactly what you're saying, Jimmy. It's like that's that's where the money is. The money is in writing the song. So I can't imagine what Mike's doing. Mike lives between Connecticut and Noosa, um, so he spends time in, in each part of the the planet. But man, the hits just I can't even believe how many. It's, it's this guy's like bigger than Prince, you know, when it comes to hits. It's just phenomenal. Check this out. We- Yeah, man that song was number 1 for a month in australia sold a million records in the us absolutely huge mike never had to go on tour
1: <laughs> didn't have to shoot a music video
0: didn't have to do any interviews asking what he likes to eat for breakfast
1: <laughs> love is a battlefield wow that's a massive hit that's still that's still a banger still a banger you know and that's the thing you'll notice throughout this podcast that a lot of the songs that he's written were hits at the time, but you'll hear now and you'll realise, man, they have really stood the test of time, like either because of sheer repetition or just the quality of the songwriting and the production as well. It means that like there's still songs that you're like, yeah, we could whack that on, you know, and that could, that could still kill. You, you say that, but I, is this a killer? I don't know why she's leaving, know where she's going. But I just don't want to know. Just for twenty four years, I've been living next door to Alice. (laughs) I mean, it's not not (laughs) Nautic. You, that that shows versatility, you know. That shows uh, a range, Osh. You know, you can write different songs for different
0: artists for different times. I think there was you mentioned like waking up in the morning and writing a hit. I often wonder, particularly with pop songwriters, I wonder if they just their subconscious just figures out the maths, like how a great comedian can make a great joke very very quickly because they figure out the maths, they figure out the rhythm, they figure out the formula, and they've got you know a minus b divided by the you know something of c and then reverse it bang there's the punchline they're able to pop the raw materials into a formula and create a joke very very quickly particularly those late night guys who work at such tight deadlines i don't if pop music composers i like that you know knowing what the maths are as far as harmonies and keys and tempos and things go and things that get just hooks and there's hooks and there's hooks and there's hooks and when it comes to hooks it doesn't get much bigger than this one Like that's just you know, that's just gonna stick in your brain for life. That track.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, if, um, if you're at a blue light disco, <laughs> if you're at a school formal, or if you're at you know the end of the wedding reception of your dodgy uncle who's <laughs> marrying his third wife, and you know you're only there because you know there's gonna be a bar tab. Um, that's a song. It's a song that's going to come on and get on the dance floor. And, you know, everyone's like, yeah, you know, do we love this song? I don't know. Have we heard enough to move our bodies to it? Sure. But, yeah, I mean, it, the the thing when you talk about is there a formula, I think that like anything, when you reach the higher level of artistry, it kind of is, but it's not something that you can share with other people because it's so intuitive. Yeah. Um, it's not something you sit down and go, oh, I'm going to write this or I'm going to create this and you have a, a point where you are overtly deciding, yeah, this is what I need to do. I don't think it works like that. Charlie Watts died recently and it reminded me that I got to uh, interview the Rolling Stones and spend you know, almost an hour with Keith Richards. And one of the things he said when I interviewed him and talked about songwriting was he was like, mate, I don't write songs. I'm just an antenna. That's all I am. I am an antenna. The songs exist out there in the ether and I just have to put myself in the way of them and they come through me. And I'm sure that's the same for Mike, you know, and and you know what that does is it removes a bit of the self out of it as yeah. well. You know, I think there is a lot of ego and a bit of narcissism in, you know, any creative arts. that oh, I did this, I created this, I made this, but, you know, the way that, Keith spoke about it was that, you know, yeah, I came up with the riffs, but I didn't, you know, not me. They came to me. They came through me. Um, And I think that's a really powerful way to think about any sort of creativity, the fact that if you can get yourself out of the way, then that's when the amazing stuff comes, you know, and when you can find a way to let go of ownership of it being you, then – yeah, it can be a really extraordinary exercise. And because it, how can it be you? How, how can it be you? Where do those ideas come from? You don't think them, you know. The same way, like when you go to sleep at night and you have a dream, who had that dream, you know? No one. It, it came to you, you know. And I think, yeah, the, the real creative geniuses, although there's a lot of narcissists in there, really understand that and and, and the people who get creative blocks try to force it and, and want themselves to make something. But I think for the greats, it's about getting yourself out of the way. I wonder, though,
0: if I would ever be able to get myself out of the way enough to allow something like this to come out of me.
1: You're sampling.
0: I just. What you're saying, Jim, I absolutely agree with. The way I rationalize what you're talking to me about is if I am able to create something that is a pure reflection of my subconscious creation based on all the information that I have input into my eyeballs and ear holes and nose buds and taste buds through my life, then I am purely reflecting this moment through my own filter and I am out of the way entirely versus. Oh, simply the the crest. Yes, this is about a logo. It has to be about a logo, you know. And and getting myself involved and then and then fucking it up.
1: At the, at the same time, if you you overthink something like that, you might go, "This is fucking stupid." Look at it on paper. You're simply the best. You're better than all the rest. Better than anyone, anyone I ever met. Like to read that on a piece of paper is to flunk year ten English. <laughs> Is to go, okay, Osh, very sweet, (laughs) but maybe poetry is not your thing, you know? But but then if you do this,
0: (laughs) with those chords, those harmonies, and we haven't even got to the shirtless saxophone player, you know? Could you imagine writing that in your English assignment? Uh, better than all the rest anyone I've ever met. Open bracket, hold for shirtless saxophone solo. Close bracket.
1: <laughs> I mean, I can't. I can't think of the shirtless saxophonist when I think of the music video. All I can think of is a shirtless and absolutely gorgeous Andrew Eddinghausen in his prime, running down a beach.
0: <laughs> oh, that's right.
1: The cheeky grin of Mal Meninga flinging a towel over his shoulder in a locker room, you know. Marty Bella looking as sexy as he'll ever look as in his entire life in a faded, slightly grimy North Sydney Rugby League jersey. Oh, the Bears, I mean, that's
0: right. It was an amazing the bears. ad.
1: They made the ad. They were in the ad. You can't underestimate what that did for Rugby League in um brisbane and sydney at the time but he would have made money from that not tina turner that's the thing that's the thing with licensing as well you know the power of writing the song is that you can make money from play on radio but you can also be the guy who's making the money from licensing on film tv and video games or whatever you're song gets used on.
0: Mike isn't just a great songwriter. He's also an extraordinary record producer. And people might hear, you know, what's a producer? A record producer is someone who basically gets the band in the room and says, okay, so this is what you've been doing, that here's how I think you can make it better. And the band trusts this person to go, okay, you can see our creative vision. Can you push us to get to a better, higher place? And there's a couple of records that Mike produced, which, you know, there was two in particular where he has reached out to the band. Like, for example, with Blondie, he was not happy with the production of the records he'd heard before, and he said, I, I reckon you could do way better with me. I can make you a hit record. And he wasn't wrong because he he created the sound, that incredible 16th note, he created that sound for Blondie's Heart of Glass. That real kind of disco beat? This song was originally a reggae track.
1: Trust, all
0: that synths and everything. He put all that together. And what I love, there's a quote from him, which I love. Is that when I asked him about this record, he goes, there's loads of hits. It's a great album, but who gives a fuck? It's easy. We go into the studio. We go and make hit records. It just happens. We don't think about it. If you're going to be in the music business, you've got to make hit records. If you can't make hit records, you should fuck off and go chop meat somewhere. <laughs> I love him, dude. He also produced an album from The Knack, um, which is incredible. When you think about, you know, we've been talking a bit about money making in the music business at the time. It was no problem for Fleetwood Mac to go into a studio for a year, spend a million nineteen seventy eight dollars on making an eight-track LP, and, you know, that was fine. Mike Chapman went into the studio with the knack for 11 days, spent $17,000, and came out with this. Changed their lives. Changed everybody's lives. Sold a gajillion records. So did Mike write that or he produced it? Produced it. Wow. Produced it, which is, you know, that's a whole entire skill set, different skill set altogether. You know, you think about what does a producer do? A producer turned U2 from Sunday Bloody Sunday into, you know, the Zoo TV tour. That's You know, they work with like Brian Eno and Flood. Like producers have cha- changed U2 into something beyond anything you two could ever have possibly wanted to be. Rick Rubin took the Red Hot Chili Peppers and turned them from this kind of weird frat boy punk thing to this bizarre kind of intense, super, you know, weird LA hippie rock machine of blood sugar sex magic. The same Rick Rubin, what he did with Jay-Z and what he did with the Beastie Boys just – Incredible! So a producer can do a lot for an artist. So that's that's amazing. You know this guy has managed to do that as well. He's quoted us to, to that that knack record He's going. Yeah, that record is very dear to me and my bank manager.
1: You know, obviously, yeah, he <laughs> profited from this. But I think you know the, the, this is the sort of guy that sort of makes these records because he understands how you know enriching it can be. You know how much joy can come from them for you on the side of the creator and producer, but also for other people. You know, must be extraordinarily fulfilling to like be driving anywhere at any stage and put on a radio station and hear one of your songs that you either wrote and produced, which must happen to him pretty much every other day.
0: He he, I've, I've heard him talk in an interview about being at one point. Um, one week he was number one, two, and three in the UK with The Sweet, Mud, and I think Racy. And then the next week, um, one of those singles did better than the other and he was number one, two, and three again, but the bands had just shifted around. So he had the top three singles in the UK two weeks in a row and they were all him. Like that's that's just <laughs> astonishing. An as- astonishing, astonishing achievement. Part of him sounds like he wants the recognition, but part of him I can also see how... We haven't heard of his name because he's was so fucking busy. (laughs) It's not like he needs the coin. Good lord.
1: Yeah, that's what we were saying. You know, you're not in it for the money anymore. You're in it for the fact that you're doing something you truly love and helping other people bring out the best in what they can do as well. But yeah, it's an extraordinary lineup. It's it's crazy. I mean, you could almost say he's probably the greatest living songwriter. In the world, if you look at that list of hits and you look at those bands he's worked with and look at the number of times they've been at number one and the number of records that have sold either with him at the helm or with him actually writing, penning the tunes, then, yeah, I mean, he's got a claim for being not just Australia's greatest songwriter, but one of the world's greatest ever songwriters.
0: Stockhake and Waterman, there was three of them, but they had like 115 top tens, but there was three of
1: them. Yeah, but like you think about the caliber of those, you know, there's not a lot yeah. that you still think, oh, well, they are incredible. You know, they were sort of a specific sound for a specific time and, yeah. you know, definitely there's a space for them now, but there's not a lot we go, they are absolute classics and I think that's what sort of sets Mike apart. And uh, Namboor. next time you're cruising past
0: the Big Pineapple, next time you're lamenting for the Forest Glen Deer Sanctuary, next time you're on your way to Gimpy or whatever it is you're driving through Nambour for, pour one out for Mike Chapman. Probably one of the greatest songwriters this world has ever, ever, ever seen. And uh, definitely next time you're at karaoke, just go to the Mike Chapman section, guaranteed a top night. That and sake, lots and lots of sake.
1: Can we make a link? Is is, I don't know how this technology works, but can we have, you know, when people say, oh, the link in the bio, like can we make a Mike Chapman playlist that we can put on the website? Do we have a website? Can we get a website? I'll put a link. I will absolutely make a Mike Chapman playlist. We are going to make a Mike Chapman playlist so you can play along at home. Next time you drive, if you listen to this podcast when you're in the car, just after you put this down and maybe whack on the Idol Australians Mike Chapman playlist. I will 100,000% put it together and,
0: uh, yeah, we will have a a Mike Chapman Spotify party. The link will be in the bio. I guess the one thing I'm listening, after hearing all this, Jimmy, just what you were saying before about getting yourself out of the way, not everyone's a creative person. Not everyone's going to, you know, write Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas or not everyone's going to write you know simply the best from tina turner but when it comes to if people wanted a taste of just trying to get yourself out of the way and allowing the creativity to come through you how 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 would they even start
1: uh, are you talking to me a guy who's never written a song <laughs> in his life no but you've definitely <laughs> you've
0: definitely gotten yourself out of the way you definitely understand the you know what it is to do great work that doesn't have your ego involved
1: mm. i i think People don't do things because they're terrified of what other people will think of them. But then the opposite side of that is people sometimes do things so they can get acclaim or plaudits or recognition, but they're actually the different sides to the same coin. You know, when someone tells you, Oh, that was amazing, what you did is incredible, the part of you that lights up is also pretty deeply tied to the part that when someone says oh that was rubbish when you feel terrible and you feel terrible they're they're pretty much intertwined in the same idea you know there's this idea you have of yourself that can either be enlivened or you know can flourish when people compliment you and can be devastated when people reject you you know but they come from the same place that idea that how you feel about yourself is being externalized this sense that whether you're feeling great or whether you're feeling shitty has been outsourced to the people around you if you can get a handle on that that none of that matters like why would you listen to what other people think of you because you know all of that is an illusion in itself so yeah i think we need to sort of start to let go of that idea if you know If this is great work, I'm not doing it because someone thinks it's great. And I'm not going to be shattered if someone doesn't think it's amazing because intrinsically, you know, I'm doing it because there's something in me that has to get out. And that can take any form. That can be, you know, whether you're a carpenter, that can be whether you're a writer, that can be whether it's in what you're cooking for your family, you know, you're doing it because it's a way of you sharing a part of yourself with others. And how it's received is, is secondary. And we get caught up in that, you know, whether it's um, positive or negative. They're bedfellows. I don't know if that helps people, but, you know, as soon as you begin to create anything in your work, in your family, in your business, and the outcome is wedded to how you think something is going to be perceived... I think you're already stuck.
0: That's the best description of get out of your own way and don't let your ego call the shots.
1: But it's super hard. Like we get trained from a yeah. very young age. Like yeah. look at how we yeah. talk to kids. Oh, you're amazing. This thing, amazing thing you did. Oh, darling, that's amazing. You're amazing, you know. And so it's really great to encourage kids and make sure that they know um, how special and unique and wonderful they are. But at the same time, you know, we we set them on a path that, Their own validation comes from what they do, not who they are. And so, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of that and getting addicted to the feeling that what I did is who I am can be pretty hard stuff to unpack. I don't know, we should ask Mike. We couldn't get him on the show tonight but I reckon we could do a part two definitely when he gets back from Connecticut or when he wakes up from his bed of money that he sleeps (laughs) on at night. We'll try and get him on. (laughs) Idle Australians, and find out from someone who's actually created that many hits, a body of work that will be yeah, a legacy. Yeah. You know, superb. Or if you've got an idea, share it with us. Yeah. We, we're open. We are open. We don't have any answers. None. None. Zero. Zip. Clueless. Two blokes talking. I'm in a cupboard. I'm literally in a cupboard with some um, removeless blankets around me. Like that's how far we've come you probably think this is a slick operation. I love listening to these guys. They've got a lot of wisdom. No, we're guys in a cupboard surrounded by blankets, (laughs) you know, doing a show. It's not even a show. We've worked on shows before. I know what a show is. A show is like there's people and there's runners and producers and there's um, a director and there's a floor manager and there's lights and an audio guy. That's a show. This is just like blokes talking to microphones and – There we go. And we put it out and we call it a show.
0: I'll tell you what this show is doing, Jimmy. This show is helping people. Case in point, Clay, who's emailed us from South Korea, at gmail.com is our email address. Just wanted to say thanks for the podcasts that are produced by you two. I listen on my daily commutes. It keeps me connected since corona won't fuck off. I've been binge listening. Particularly the episode about You're the Voice made me proud, a bit homesick. After the chicken salt episode, I'm now looking for a place to order some so I can use it to introduce to my local Korean friends. Lamingtons and Tin Tams were a hit. I'm looking for a third hit as well. Thanks for your hard work. Keep it up. Jimmy, something that's not a show doesn't do that. That is the work of a show. We have made a show. And Clay is case in point. Congratulations, you work on a show. By work, I mean not getting paid. None of us is getting paid. Nobody's nobody's getting paid. Shows on shows, people get
1: paid. Nobody gets paid here. Sorry. <laughs>
0: should we start a Patreon or something? Maybe we should. No,
1: no. Then no, it just looks sad and pathetic. And <laughs> no, it doesn't. That's brilliant. That's a brilliant way to you know. But you know, we're doing it out of love. Doing it out of love, um, and for Clay. But Tim Tams. Let's get to that. Put that on the list. You got a list? Write it down. We're doing There's Tim Tams. To put it
0: on the list. All right, Jimmy. Good night. Take care. This has been a great experience. You should wear your hat more often. It
1: has elements of a show. It has, it's showish. It It has some of the things that you would have in a show. (laughs) But, I mean, to call it a show? It's a stretch, brother It's even a show now Thank you so much to our
0: audio producer, Daryl Misson Who made this sound way better than it actually was when we recorded it Mike Mills, aka Toe Hider, who made all the music James Matheson, Oshigginsburg IdleAustralians at gmail.com Thanks for listening See you next Thursday Which is an interesting acronym
1: And check out our Mike Chapman Playlist on Spotify Spotify playlist
0: Links in the notes Yes Links in the show notes